Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News and Jordan Fabian, White House reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, they join us. We're going to roundtable this thing a little bit. So, David, I want to get the latest reporting out of Detroit. What's the expectation? Will there be a strike? And if so, is there any expectation of how long it may last? Uh, I think there certainly will be. Uh, all, all of the the vibe coming out of the union right now is they're, the president is itching to strike. He says he's not, but... He's making plans. The rhetoric is still really strong against the car companies, against rich executives, all that stuff. So he's getting people riled up. He says they're far apart. Uh, it doesn't sound like they are if you look at the numbers. So um, I think they will. And um, look, it, it could go on for a while. Uh, I don't think it'll be something like three months, uh, but I, I could see strike going on for weeks and it could vary really? by car company too it, it it doesn't necessarily it could be two days at one and three weeks at another right i mean if he gets the deal he wants from, from specific companies so david how far uh, apart are they because i've read now that um the union has lowered its demand for pay increases slightly um and the last i saw from automakers was about double what i had seen a week ago so how, how far apart are they right now yeah, so look, Ford is up to 20%, and GM is at 18% pay raises over four years, which is, I think, better than they've ever gotten. Um, so, you know, I, I think, um, and it's not the 36% they asked for, but I, I think that was sort of a, a highball offer from the union to begin with. But they asked um, for that so, because uh, the chief executives have gotten the, those kinds of pay increases over the past four years as well, haven't they? That's right, and, and, and look, you know, CEOs got to kind of be careful what they wish for, right? Because, you know, suddenly they might have a union saying, you got 40% and, and, and why didn't I? And yeah. the union didn't get great raises over the last contract. And I'm, I'm sure some labor negotiators at the companies got bonuses for negotiating a pretty low-cost contract last time. And they used to be careful what they wish for because now they've got yeah. an extremely angry union. <laughs> uh, with, But they do. And, they, and with, with a president who wants to make a statement about labor's role in America, this isn't just about this contract with him. Yep. He wants to bring the labor movement back to prominence in, in, in America. All right. And, and all right, so that, that's where we are. Yep. Jordan Fabian, let's bring you in. You cover the White House for Bloomberg News in Washington, D.C. The President Biden, he has said twice that there won't be a strike here. What are you hearing out of uh, the White House? 
Uh, I think that's the, the president being his usual optimistic self. Uh, other people I've talked to aren't so optimistic, and you know they see what we're all seeing, which is a union and management still uh, apart on on a contract, and uh, you know they have encouraged the sides to stay at the table. But you know some people I've talked to have said, look, I, we don't know how this is going to end. Uh, it, it's all we can do is kind of encourage them to keep talking, but uh, there's really not much we can do to uh, force them to get a contract. So they're crossing their fingers and hoping uh, there's not a strike. And if there is, it's not a long one. You know, uh, Jordan, David David points out that this president um, wants to bring unions back to prominence. At the same time, he has backed up truckloads of subsidies and dumped them on the automakers' doorsteps um, to, to try and encourage them to uh, build more electric vehicles, for which, by the way, we don't even know how much demand there is. Um, that is going to require far fewer workers. So is he working at cross purposes? This is the central dilemma for Joe Biden is uh, you know, this clean energy transition is one of his biggest domestic priorities. But guess what? So is empowering the U.S. labor movement. And in this negotiation, he's found himself caught in the middle of those two priorities, and they're really no easy answers. Uh, they've done, the administration has done something recently. Uh, they've released this $15 billion tranche of money from the energy department to incentivize uh, factory retooling. And they've, you know, they put some strings attached there. They're encouraging uh, car companies to uh, use that money on unionized plants and, and make sure the benefits go to union workers, but they're not forced to. And this has been uh, the bane uh, for Sean Fain, which is uh, he doesn't think the administration imposed enough conditions on this all this money that's going to the car companies. And so uh, in addition to the pay and benefits, this EV transition issue has been uh, at the backdrop of this negotiation. And it's really, you know, causing political problems for Joe Biden because he needs all the union support he get going into 2024. And here you have this major union on the side saying, not so fast. Hey, David, do we know how this union will strike? Will they strike one automaker, all three? Do we know kind of their strategy? Um, I think they'll, they will strike all three. And what, they're, what they've said they're going to do is they, they'll strike individual plants. They're, they're not going to walk out on the entire company. And, that's one, one way of minimizing the payout from the strike fund, which pays workers some money while they're striking. Um, and, and if they struck all three at every plant, they'd run out of money in about seven weeks. They don't want to do that. So they'll, they'll strike individual plants. And what I think they'll do is they'll strike the plants that make the most profitable vehicles, which would be the large pickup truck and SUV plants. Because um, that, you know, if, if you were to take down Ford and GM's large SUV and pickup plants, I mean, it's something like 70 or 80 percent of their profits come from those vehicles. You do a lot of damage and put a lot of pressure on the companies very quickly while paying minimally out to your strike fund. And then if they don't get a deal, they can kind of keep, you know, adding another plant here and there. They could strike parts plants that supply the dealers with replacement parts for customers. That could create a lot of chaos. There are a lot of ways they could. With individual plant strikes, they could apply a lot of pressure. Hey, David, just person on the street in Detroit, which way are they leaning? Um, I mean, like, it kind of runs the gamut, but I, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a union city, so there's going to be a lot of sympathy for them. It's also the, the, the Detroit city proper, there's a lot of poverty there. So, you know, strikers trying to get 
that what they think is their fair share would, would probably have a lot of sympathy. Uh, you move further out in the state and you start to see comments on social media like 40 percent, 32 hour work week. You guys are on crack. <laughs> I've read stuff like that. So um, <laughs> Michigan's, a, Michigan's a very bifurcated place in that sense. I mean, 40 percent seemed like a lot to me at first also until I read that the chief executives were getting that, you know, and this is an industry that was bailed out by the U.S. government yes, there you go. during uh, the great financial crisis and uh, a union that that gave a lot of help, frankly, that that accepted a worse contract um, in order to to help the automakers stay alive. Now, the automakers have made a ton of money over the past I 10 know. years. And Jordan, does you know, from that perspective, doesn't the president from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who cares <laughs> about the scrappy workers, doesn't he go march with the with the union when they strike? That would be quite the image, wouldn't it? Uh, Joe Biden <laughs> holding a picket sign. But uh, that's what he wants us well, to think of him, right? It, no, it, it, he absolutely does. He's repeatedly called himself the most pro-union president in U.S. history. He did put out a statement about a month ago that did voice support generally for uh, some of the union demands, like high, better pay and benefits, making sure if there's a factory retooling or closing down that you know, the union members are taken care of and that they keep jobs in union communities. But look, he also you know, needs these corporations. Like, he needs them for the clean energy transition. Not to mention, he needs the corporate America on side to give him campaign donations for his re-election yeah. campaign. So yeah. uh, that's why you're not going to see him wearing that red shirt that Sean Fain was wearing in that, in that <laughs> image. All right, fellas. Uh, thank you so much for joining both of you. Jordan Fabian, uh, he covers uh, the White House for Bloomberg News, and David Welch, uh, Detroit bureau chief, uh, out there giving us uh, kind of the feel for the, the two sides here. Again, midnight tonight, uh, Eastern time uh, is the deadline. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we had the European Central Bank hike interest rates uh, for the 10th time to quash 
inflation, the deposit rate now 4.4% up from 3.7%, uh, 3.75%. Where do we go from here? Are they done? Let's check in with Dr. Richard Portis, professor at the London Business School. Uh, professor, thanks so much for joining us here. A, what do you make of the ECB move, ECB's move today? And then B, are they done? I'm disappointed. I don't think they should have hiked today. Uh, the pressures on the European economy are very great now, uh, and growth forecasts are just falling and falling. Uh, the latest European Commission forecast, independently of the ECB, uh, has cut back their forecasts uh, considerably, uh, so that I think they're pushing us into a recession, pushing the Eurozone into a recession, and uh, that seems to be unwise. Uh, the, what they should have done is wait. In my view, uh, the data are mixed. Otherwise, the inflation data are mixed, and uh, it would have been better to hold on. Um, they only have one mandate, though. The European Central Bank, unlike the Fed, doesn't worry or isn't supposed to um, be focused on the labor market and, I guess, um, economic growth altogether. Their their only job is to keep inflation at a what a steady level. Excuse me. They're talking about they're big into climate and all that. Um, they're criticizing the Italian government for their windfall profit tax on banks. Uh, their single mandate uh, has a very broad scope. Uh, and actually, if you look at it, um, they are required to take account of their actions on the overall level of economic activity uh, in the Eurozone. All right. So um, you're worried that they essentially push the eurozone into a recession. Um, we're already seeing, you know, uh, we're already seeing that in some of the biggest economies in Germany, uh, for example. Um, but they have said this is their final rate hike. Does that? Well, they haven't said it, actually. Let me let me step no, they back. Haven't said it. In fact, haven't in fact, said Christine Lagarde said she can't say that, which she can't, yeah. obviously. But we kind of you can read between the lines and see that this is their final rate hike. So um, does that kind of blunt the, uh, does that kind of um, uh, reduce the damage effectively? Well, if it's, if it really is final, uh, yes, that's, that reduces the prospects of damage. Uh, but uh, still, I think they've gone too far. And uh, we'll just, we'll see what happens. The inflation data are not particularly good, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, um, it's turning around. It has been turning around for a while. Uh, and I think the wisest course is to wait. But um, but there are people, several people um, with strong views uh, in the council, governing council of the ECB, uh, who think, no, we must stamp on inflation dramatically. And that's what they're doing. Professor, here in the U.S., uh, the talk has been about a soft landing. Um, that is not the case in Europe. Could you give us your view of kind of where the European economy is, how we should think about it, on, maybe on this side of the pond? It's certainly not a soft landing here uh, in Europe, and I, I include the UK uh, in that, of course, as well. Uh, but, uh, um, but I think that's where we've got to. The labor market is holding up fairly well, uh, as in the US, for that matter. Uh, but economic activity is slowing down very considerably, and uh, how long you can, how long they can take that, uh, the politicians 
are coming, European elections are coming up, uh, not in just in individual countries, uh, but also the European Parliament elections are coming up. And there's going to be a lot of criticism of uh, the ECB if indeed we find the Eurozone going into a full-scale recession. Uh, I wonder, um, you know, how uh, hesitant you are to include the UK when you talk about Europe, because aren't there very big differences? Uh, and to some extent, the UK has, you know, kind of repeatedly shot itself in the foot. <laughs> well, I mean, depends which, which gun you're talking about, doesn't it? Um, uh, uh, was that the left foot or the right foot or both at the same time? <laughs> yes, um, I'm afraid we have done. Uh, and uh, right now, there seems no prospect of that uh, reversing. Uh, but, uh, but here, too, um, I believe we should not be raising rates any further. Uh, the, uh, the data are turning around. They're turning around for, for inflation. They're turning around slower than one would like, for sure. But uh, the cost of the restrictive policies is high. And that, I think, is unwise. Uh, the, um, the, otherwise, you know, the banking sector is in pretty good shape, both in the Eurozone and in the UK. Uh, how long that will last, we don't know. But the rise in interest rates has, of course, widened that interest margins for a while. Uh, they will they will come down as as banks have to pass on some of the uh, interest rate rises to the depositors, but the financial sector is in pretty good shape in general, uh, and it's just the main suffering is in manufacturing and to some extent in services, uh, and uh, that's. Um, that's serious. Yep. And Professor, when, it, when you talk about manufacturing, European manufacturing, I think most U.S. investors think Germany. Can you tell us about how we should be thinking about the German economy here and maybe the outlook? It's not a pretty picture. Uh, the problem is partly a slowdown in external demand from China uh, in particular, uh, and that is very substantial and very severe and has a big impact across a wide range of German engineering firms. Uh, so that's a big deal. Uh, the unions have pushed wages up and uh, German manufacturing is, um, there's not a sector I can think of right now that is balancing this trend downwards. Uh, and if you look at the data, uh, they're pretty, they're pretty depressing. So, uh, so and it's it's not it's not easy to see how that's going to turn around. Actually, uh, the um, the finance minister is a very uh, um, conservative, shall we say, uh, uh, minister, and he certainly has no intention of any fiscal expansion. Indeed, just the other way around. The prospect for next year for Germany is fiscal contraction uh, in the face of this. Uh, in the face of this gathering recession, that seems to me very foolish. What do you think uh, the solution the solution is to the problems that the European Union faces in terms of monetary policy? You have got this one, uh, you know, organization setting monetary policy for so many different and diverse economies. Does that you think work? Has it worked out so far? Does it need to change? 
it's always look if you look at the united states you have a single monetary authority setting policies for states as diverse as mississippi and california uh, not to mention uh, illinois where i grew up a long time ago uh, so uh, it's um, uh, this one-size-fits-all problem is a problem you have in any large single economy uh, and to the extent that the european the eurozone is a single economy uh, it's it is diverse and you're going to have areas where even in the uk we've had this conflict in part with monetary policy having different impacts uh, on london and say the northeast uh, and there's nothing you can do about that you have to have a single monetary policy you can't have different interest rates for different zones so uh, the one-size-fits-all problem is there it's no more acute in my view in the eurozone than it is in any large uh, geographically diverse uh, economy uh, but it's true that you have very different for example in the eurozone very different rates of inflation in the baltic countries it's been much higher than the uh, than the rate um, in um, uh, uh, in france say or spain uh, and spain where spain has been very low yep uh, so you know um that's that's something they can't they can't do much about they can't do right. anything about right uh, but it's not uh, it's not special to the eurozone okay Dr. Richard Portis, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, getting uh, your thoughts and analysis. Dr. Richard Portis, he's a professor at the London Business School. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, when I first learned about this whole REIT thing years and years ago. Fund flows from operation. That's the profitability metric that these people focus FFO. on. FFO. I thought it was a scam. You're talking about a real estate investment trust. I know. That's it's kind of the thing. I thought it at the time was a scam, but now I, I understand how it works. That's Chris, their free cash flow. No, it's like their EBITDA. Oh. I think. I don't know, but our next guest can help us out. Christine uh, Mastandria, she is the COO of Whitestone REIT. That trades on the New York Stock Exchange, WSR. Christine, Whitestone Reed, tell us about um, your company. What kind of real estate do you guys own or do you guys focus on? So primarily, we focus on neighborhood retail. So this would be your high visit, um, great uh, corners with traffic, and pretty much based on convenience versus soft goods. So I think about the, the pandemic. In my home, in my town in Jersey, lots of, and we have a very vibrant downtown in, in, in New Jersey, lots of businesses went out of uh, went, went out of business. So yeah. a lot of uh, for, you know for sale for rent signs. What is it? Short Hills, Summit, Summit. Yeah, mm. and better town than Short Hills, uh, better train station. Um, <laughs> so which is why I chose Summit over Short Hills. Better train station. Some people choose the uh, the name. I just wanted to make it clear I because know. I can imagine properties like that in right. Short Hills or Summit. I can imagine properties like, in Scarsdale and Bronxville. You know, this is mm. where. So what happened to your properties then and kind of where are you now? 
So we had the fortune of being in two very strong markets. So we we're in Texas and Arizona. Oh, nice. So our rebound from COVID was much, much quicker. In fact, it probably, I think we we're affected maybe for six months. Really? So yeah, so wow. we had very few tenants default. Yeah, because you guys um, didn't shut down, do the no, mass thing. Didn't. You just partied, we, right? Well, yeah. uh, I mean, there, on there the was, Ozarks and the- uh, Yeah, there was good, a little bit of that nice. going on, I'd have to say. And and our restaurants, um, you know, for a while, there was a little bit of spacing, but- um, you know, they rebounded really quickly, and right. then quickly after that, um, same thing with fitness and all of our other operators. So. so what is this? You're not just the COO of Whitestone REIT. You're also a professor of commercial real estate and strategic management at Rice Business School. What is this fun flow from operations? Uh, what's the significance of that for a REIT? So it's a little bit different than EBITDA, right? Okay. I mean, as far as profitability. So what you have to take into context is we're an asset-heavy business. Yep. And so that means you have to reinvest capital into the business. And so that takes that into account. So it's a little bit different as far as getting to a so bottom line like number. A cash flow thing. I was thinking maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, maybe somewhere in the middle. But anyway, they, they buy off on it. All right. So uh, at Whitestone Reed, you're Texas, you're Arizona. What's the growth story for, for your company? Is it is it acquisition? Is it just increasing the the um, you know, the number of the vacancies and all that kind of stuff? I mean, not the vacancy, the occupancy. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different uh, components of our business. So first of all, occupancy. And the big part about occupancy is, is you don't just want to fill the space. You really want to serve, successfully serve the neighborhood. So making sure that you have the right merchandise mix is very important to what we do. That's number one. Number two, we also take a number of centers. We have a number of our centers in our portfolio that we redevelop. So that's improved the the look, the feel, the customer convenience for that center. It may also be taking out some parking because now you don't need as much parking. You don't need that same in building in some density as well. And then along with that, we do acquire. And so there's always that opportunity for acquisition. Um, it's been a little challenging right now because the pricing for product hasn't quite adjusted yet with cap rates, but we're starting to see that loosen up. You're the tiny house people of, of real estate, of commercial real estate, right? You're looking in smaller spaces, less parking. Yes. yes. Um, and what? And I guess those the stores are closer to each other. What, what's the yeah. benefit of that over big? So I think small is beautiful, and one of the reasons why is because if you look at so our 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 space size is about 2,500 to 3,000 square feet, and our centers are around 50,000 to 150,000 square feet in size. So that to, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 square feet has the widest range of uses out there. So it's the most flexible real estate. So when you think about a mall, it's not really that flexible, right? Yep. It's large, it's big box. There's not a lot of users that can go in and out of some of those spaces, especially a power center. But in our case, we primarily are service-based and necessity-based. So this gives us the most flexibility to meet the neighborhood needs with that size space. So what are some of the typical tenants or maybe an anchor tenant? Or what are some of the areas of growth in terms of tenants now? Yeah. We've found a really, so I found that what has transitioned the most uh, going in 20 years in this business is that number one, grocery anchored used to be where things were okay. at. But if you think about where the competition is for grocery, it's really restaurants. And that has everything to do with convenience and the experience. So we've seen this real explosion in the restaurant uses in most of our centers. And so um, that's been the primary driver. Is of that traffic. like a Chili's or something like that as an anchor Not or lo more much. local? More local. Oh, okay. In okay. fact, so many people, that's, on, that's part of the experiences that people are looking for right yep. now is the taste of food and chef inspired and so on and so forth. So. Especially in Texas, we have a very, very broad range of restaurant uses right. all the way. Houston, in particular, is very international. Well, so. Texas is, 
I mean, it's a country in and of itself. I mean, I know you guys like to think of yourself as not even part of the country, but in Texas, I mean, it's it's so big. Is there certain parts yeah. of Texas that you guys focus on, or more urban areas or yeah. more rural? So areas? you know, Texas was its own country. I know, I know. Right. I know. <laughs> they teach very that proud up here. Of that. They, they teach <laughs> that. Very up proud here. of that. <laughs> uh, so uh, primarily, we stay in the fastest, largest growing okay. cities. So we're in Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, nice. and then we're in Phoenix, and you know, the Phoenix uh, East Valley as well. So which is also fast. But you want to have a neighborhoody. Neighborhood. Everybody's field. moving we there. I mean, the what's, it, what's it like in your markets? Everybody's moving there, right? Oh, that's Crazy. Is very, very exciting. So I think we jokingly call Phoenix uh, Chicago West and California <laughs> East. <laughs> so because that, and that's really changed. So finally in Phoenix, you have really good Italian food. Thank you for Chicago. <laughs> uh, but on the other side of that, I think that in particular, Dallas has had such, um, such a growth strength because they've really focused on the job market yep. and Fortune 500 to 100 companies. So they've gone after that group yeah. of that job market. Austin has done extremely well. And because of that, San Antonio, as people are starting to move to San Antonio, so you have, of course, the educational system that really pushes that, and you have high tech there. I mean, with Michael Dell, he has, you know, created his own ecosystem there. Tech. Yeah. So, and then Houston has, has been, you know, viewed primarily as oil and gas, but what's really changed with Houston is that they've gotten heavily, it's the largest medical district in the world, so that's shifted okay. as well. So, it, you know, a lot of people are moving there because it's a business-friendly state, but it also is the job drivers, the, just the job growth has been tremendous. And then we're seeing the same in Phoenix, and especially there, it's getting younger, it used to yep. be a retirement community, but you have ASU, which has been yep. a huge, you know, proponent of change there as well. So. A little hot in your markets, though. You but it's guys, dry yes. heat, Paul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but these guys, these guys, their entire summer was like 120 yeah. degrees. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. It, it's been a little steamy <laughs> in Houston and then Arizona. It's just, it's very hot. So. Wow. Yeah. All right. But great markets, great growth markets. Yeah. Uh, Christine uh, Mastandre, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Christine is the COO of Whitestone REIT, uh, the New York Stock Exchange ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminals, WSR. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Silverman, government analyst covering tax policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us. Uh, Andrew, how are you looking at this ARM IPO in the context of just the, the IPO biz in general? Yeah, uh, thanks, Paul. I, I actually I wanted to respond to your your comment about uh, companies going public at all. I, I think I think you're onto something. I mean, the number of companies that are uh, public in the United States has is almost half of what it was in in 1996. Uh, it's dropped down to something like uh, 4,300. And you know, companies can get cash in lots of uh, lots of ways. They don't have to go public to get their cash. I mean, uh, uh, there there's about uh, what uh, 6.3 trillion in assets that uh, the private equity funds have. Uh, compliance costs are really high uh, right now. It's it's about an average of four percent of a company's market cap. There are more regulations than ever, not just the 33 and 34 acts, but uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd Frank. Um, and companies have to take a, a short-term view um, in the sense that they have to put out quarterly filings and and uh, uh, make. Uh, distributions to their shareholders, and so they have to take uh, you know the short-term view over long-term priorities. And a, a company like Arm really has to prioritize a long-term view. It has to invest in in R and D, uh, and so thinking short-term not not uh, not the greatest. And one other thing that I would bring up, 
uh, there's going to be this new standard which comes out uh, pretty soon from from FASB, the, the accounting standards board called NOCLAR, uh, which experts uh, believe will double or even triple um, the, the fees that companies have to pay to their auditors. And what it does is it essentially says to the auditors, if, if there's any regulation, law, anything around the world that's going to have a, a material impact on a company's uh, filings, it has to be included. And so that means that auditors are responsible for checking everything everywhere in any country that the, the company operates in order to make sure that uh, all material risks are, uh, are covered. So it's not a great time to be a public company. Those are all the uh, reasons you wouldn't want to go public. And I mean, clearly, if you're a billionaire and you don't have a fantastic valuation, you take your company private. That's that's uh, the smart move. Andrew Silverman, um, hang tight for a second because I want to bring Kunjan Sabani, lead semiconductor analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kunjan, um, having said all that, and I'm sure you know all the reasons why you wouldn't necessarily want to go public, why is Masasun, why is SoftBank taking ARM public right now rather than any other um, exit, exit strategy? Yeah, I mean, the simple reason is they just need liquidity right now, given what's happening in their parent business SoftBank, so they're just in need of some cash. And this is one of their biggest assets, which uh, might not be the perfect time, but still relatively in the past, it's a better time today to go public with this. Uh, the other thing to keep in account, they're limiting their flow to really like only $5 billion, less than 10%. So they are holding on to get a higher price later in the future. Hey, Kunjan, you know, as I looked at this perspective, it looks like this is a company that designs chips for telephones. Great. But they are pitching this company now as, hey, we're going to be an AI company going forward. So they're asking me to pay an AI-ish type multiple for a phone chip manufacturer. Is, is that kind of what they're asking the market to, to buy off on? Uh, and yes, that's exactly right. I mean, look, they're pitching, they're asking the market to underwrite the future. Uh, sort of the next NVIDIA moment and um, their current business is primarily like you said smartphones and consumer electronics and to some degree IOT but the AI server and the automotive market is where they've had recent design wins which they expect to grow their share there and that is what they're selling to the investors like hey you can bet on us for this coming in the future so you don't miss out. Hey, Andrew, back in the day, you know, I could take a company public with not much more than a business plan. But today, it seems like the market wants not only revenues, but profits. I mean, it, it, that also maybe thins out the, the herd for potential IPO candidates. Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly right. And uh, in this case, um, uh, I mean, well, so... Um, I mean, why, why do you invest in a, in a company? I mean, on the one hand, you want to get your returns. On the other hand, um, you have an expectation you're going to have some sort of control over uh, over the company that you're investing in. And this is not one of those cases because SoftBank is going to keep uh -huh. controlling it after the IPO. And it's going to be uh, what's called a foreign private issuer. And so the shareholders won't even know uh, as much about it as, as a typical U.S. company. Won't have to make quarterly filings. Won't have to have quarterly shareholder calls. Um, and not subject to uh, Reg FD, so it can share material non-public information selectively, not uh, just to uh, to um, a select group of, of shareholders, not all shareholders. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, if, if the only thing that, that, that people are investing in ARM for is uh, a shareholder distribution, I think they're also going to be disappointed in the fact that this company has to invest so much in its R&D, and it also has such high operating expenses. So, and it's a good point that this is all about SoftBank. Kunjan, ARM 
isn't reaping any of the proceeds from this IPO, right? Um, it's not like they're going to be able to reinvest and build their business. This is just cashing out from Masa Sun. That's exactly right. None of the proceeds are going to ARM to be invested in the business. Kunjan, just real quick, 30 seconds. Uh, of the chip makers out there, which ones do you think are best positioned for this AI move? I mean, NVIDIA, of course, we all are aware of. Uh, this second closest is AMD. They are also betting big on AI. Um, and I would go Broadcom and Intel also have significant AI exposure. And do you expect, is, can, it, can a company like ARM make that pivot, do you think? How, how, how do you view that opportunity? Uh, they could. I mean, look, they currently they have low single digit share, but they have had recent massive wins. Amazon, uh, Google, um, uh, startups like Ampere adopting ARM technology, Apple. So there's room to uh, leverage and build on those wins. And they can, I mean, look, they don't need to be the dominant player, even if they grow their market share by another 5%. That's talking about billions of dollars adding to a company which is below 3 billion in revenue. So significant growth from just a little bit of an increment share gains. All right, Kunjan, thanks so much for joining us. Kunjan Sobhani, he is the uh, technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in San Francisco. And Andrew Silverman, uh, government analyst covering the tax policy, uh, looking at the IPO market in general. He does all that stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence based down in Washington, D.C. We've got BI analysts basically everywhere they need to be. If you need tech, we got folks in San Francisco. If you need the policy stuff, uh, we got folks down in D.C. right where it all happens. So the BI folks know what they're doing down there. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk gaming, one of my favorite sectors to cover the casinos. But we're not going to be talking craps or blackjack or any of that kind of stuff. We're talking hacking. I think some of these casino companies have been hacked over the past couple of days. I'm talking the big ones like MGM 
and Caesars. So let's break this down, see what the risk is here uh, to these companies. Brian Egger, uh, Senior Gaming Analyst and Lodging Analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence joins us. And Jody Lurie, uh, Credit Analyst uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she joins us uh, via Zoom, both via Zoom. There, um, Jody's down in our Princeton office. Brian, let's just start with you. What, what's going on with these big uh, casino companies and some hacking? So it came about that we found out a couple of days ago that MGM has been the target of an ongoing cyber attack attempt that has resulted in system shutdowns across a wide range of services. That's casino, hotel, um, other systems that have had to revert to manual operations. Obviously, it's been significantly disruptive. Um, so there's an ongoing effort to remediate this, but um, it has certainly been an ongoing topic of interest to anyone following the industry. Hey, Jody, from the, the balance sheet perspective, from the is talk to us about these two companies or the industry in general, about kind of where we are in terms of the capital structure and the debt loads and the leverage. Are these balance sheets in, in decent shape? Yeah, so I think I think that's definitely a great question. Uh, these companies have been very much improving their balance sheets since the pandemic, but it's a little bit more complicated than that and a little bit more nuanced. If you take someone like Caesars, they've been directly deleveraging proactively. MGM, it's a little bit um, touch and go because they opted to sell out of their assets through a sale leaseback, and so a substantial portion of their of their quote unquote debt, or if you consider adjusted leaseback debt, is leasebacks. I mean that's about half of their debt load outstanding. So from a debt perspective, you say, all right, look, these companies are actually pretty good shape, but if you add leases, it makes MGM look less favorable than Caesars. But there's no issue here, Jody, just kind of like, if there's gonna be a material hit to their profitability or their cash flows for right. either of these companies, do you think? Yeah, so so I think that's the key is that, you know, and Brian and I have been talking about it all week, is at least for now, the expected effects for their cash flows from a long-term perspective might not be so grand. It's really a question of what is the sort of echo effects for these companies over time that could impact margins and therefore cash flows. And I think, you know, the, the issue is, you know, if, if insurance is going to cover a good portion of it, um, what sort of knock-on effects to um, things like reservations might, might be affected. You know, if MGM's site is down all week and it's right during their peak season of of bookings because we have a lot of events going on that Brian has talked ad nauseum about. Does this mean that MGM is going to lose out to competitors when people are starting to book for things like Formula One and things going on in the, in the fourth quarter? Brian, Jody is sick of hearing you talk about the <laughs> events. Come on, man. Um, oh, they're, they're big. Events matter. Absolutely. I, I, so, but in terms of, I just, just to wrap up the, the, the hacking um, side of this, are uh, MGM or any of the other casinos more at risk of um, hacking than other, you know, I guess, financial companies? I mean, we've begun to view this as at very least an industry-wide risk. Caesars had an 8K report out this morning indicating that they were the target uh, of another effort to um, hack into their systems. Um, along with that, some of the loyalty program members' uh, information was tapped. So this is an ongoing risk. Caesars managed to weather that particular incident without the very visible systems-wide outage that MGM is still undergoing. Uh, but I think it's fair to assume this is going to be an industry-wide risk requiring really coordinated uh, remediation and containment efforts. And we will get some offset, presumably from MGM, from cyber insurance, 
We just do not know the degree to which uh, we'll get those offsetting um, uh, streams. All right, let's step back and, and look at this, just this industry in general. Jody, when you talk to creditors out there, credit investors, how do they view the gaming business? Is this something that is a, a, a really solid credit out there for a lot of investors? Do they buy the industry? Do they buy individual names? How do they approach it? I think if you like gaming, you're in gaming. You're full-fledged in gaming, and then you're just picking names. I think there's a lot of creditors who say, I don't even want to touch the space because it's too cyclical. I mean, let's remember that back in 2008, MGM got a little bit over, um, over-levered with, with City Center. They were able to get themselves out of it, but comparison to that, Caesars, and we're not talking the Caesars of today, because the Caesars of today is El Dorado, but historically, Caesars was LBO'd, taken private, and then they ended up going through a restructuring. So it's definitely an, uh, an industry that if you like it, you really like it and you're involved in it. If you don't like it, you don't really go near it. But to be clear, I mean, Paul was talking about craps and blackjack. <laughs> and I mean, that's not, uh, is that still the lion's share of their revenue or is their revenue more like, you know, bankers booking conferences at the resort? <laughs> They're, they're definitely shifting, shifting their mix, and we're seeing that with, with Sands over in Macau. I mean, they're focusing so much on their non-gaming portion of their business, and I think you're seeing that in Vegas as well, and, and they would hope for the regional casinos, that obviously gaming is the bread and butter of the business, but they want to give people the other element. They want to give people the shows and the shopping and the experiences, because that's what's going to keep people. That's also going to bring other types of individuals than just your dedicated slot users or craps tables players. Um, I'm a Vegas guy. I mean, I'm Mr. Vegas, of course. But Brian, I understand in reading your research and talking to you that the regional gaming business is a big, big part of it. Talk to us about some of those kind of like non-Vegas aspect to the U.S. gaming business. How's that performing? Because gas is expensive. It's going to cost me a lot to get to my Mississippi uh, River kind of casino. Yeah, the regional gaming trends have performed well. We've probably leveled off, certainly above pre-pandemic levels, but compared to last year, things have begun to perhaps flatten. I think the bigger challenge, not only for Vegas, but for regional properties, is on the cost side. As the companies have reinstated full pre-pandemic service levels, they may find it tougher to sustain the very significant margin gains they got relative to pre-pandemic experience. I will point out that this cyber incident is affecting uh, MGM's regional properties as well as its Vegas properties. So this is really a kind of a national issue for MGM. In terms of, uh, you, you know, where they're getting their revenue, you mentioned Jody Macau. Um, is is Las Vegas dwindling as, uh, a, 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 you know, revenue source? Are, are they getting more revenue overseas now, the bigger companies? So if you look at it from more than revenue, we care more on EBITDA, especially from a debt perspective. And, and from an EBITDA perspective, um, Macau is still coming back. So Macau was roughly 22% of MGM's uh, EBITDA or EBITDA, uh, which includes rent, in um, before the pandemic, so 2019. They're not quite there yet. They have seen a significant uptick, but Vegas and regionals are still certainly the lion's share of what's going on in their business. No pun intended on the lion because that's MGM's logo. But <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's the key is that Macau is this source of momentum that's happening, but it's not quite 
to pre-pandemic levels, and that's a function of the fact that it's only been open since the beginning of the year. I think that that provides some nice tailwinds for MGM to make up for the fact that the U.S. business is having this little blip of an issue. Um, and, and even if things start to slow down in the U.S. And, and people aren't doing this revenge spending that we saw over the past year and a half, two years, we might see Macau help to sort of offset that a little bit. Hey, Brian, is there any new property coming online in Vegas? Um, so there's um, a couple of things that are underway for future developments. Uh, nothing like really imminent. Um, Got the but, orb, you know, there right? There's that very cool orb where yeah. like you two apparently yeah. is well, yeah, the, the spheres. The sphere is interesting because sphere. that's a non-gaming attraction, but it's highly significant. A lot of the recent additions to Vegas have been uh, not to diminish the importance of long-term resort development, but a lot of the additions to Vegas have been in the form of non-gaming entertainment. So you've got the Sphere Entertainment Venue. Uh, Jody earlier mentioned the Formula One Grand Prix, which I'll mention again. But also you've got um, sports teams significantly. You have the, um, um, the Golden Knights playing um, at um, a T-Mobile Center. You've got Allegiant Stadium hosting the Raiders. And of course, you have the A's moving to Vegas uh, at a site that will be on a stadium uh, abutting the, the current Tropicana. So not to diminish the importance of potential long-term resort developments, but these non-gaming developments uh, related to entertainment, sports, conferences, uh, those are all rather significant additions to draw tourism yep. that don't necessarily add significant room capacity. All right, great stuff as always. Brian Egger, uh, Jody Laurie, they're your analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence covering uh, the gaming biz from the equity side and the credit side. It does not get any better than that. We got full equity and credit coverage. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. High school friends I have not talked to in a long time who are saying, you never told me, uh, I think as they're watching this on, on, on TV. But most of all, I'm so thrilled for the employees of ARM. Uh, 33-year-old company, great heritage. Um, but watching all the employees in Cambridge celebrate simultaneously, that was, that was magical. And they might continue to celebrate as we see, what, 17, 18% increase. How has that journey of going out to investors, the roadshow, the story that you've been able seemingly to successfully sell, the fact that you're trading well on this day. What was the vision they wanted to hear? Revenue growth, I hear of what, 11% up to 25% in the next couple of years? What drives you? I think uh, it was a great process. Uh, investors really wanted to understand the, the opportunity we had in front of us. And of course, AI, which you can't really talk about our industry without talking about AI. And I think helping them understand that uh, you can't really run AI without ARM, without a CPU. And just pointing out to them that it's in everywhere and every device that people touch was a big part of the process for us. Because everyone has made the equivalent of, your smartphones completely absorbed more than 90% of phones is where your CPUs are. But the design, the fact that you now want to be integral to data centers and the like, how certain are you on the revenue vision, on the profitability vision, even though we see concerns about macro environment still and whether or not we're in an AI hype cycle? Yeah, so AI, uh, AI is everywhere. Uh, and if it's your uh, edge device like the Assistant or the uh, Alexa or your autonomous vehicle, that's all AI. And, and now we're seeing it in the cloud and the data center with all the growth of NVIDIA. NVIDIA announcing one of their newest products, Grace Hopper, that is based on ARM. So ARM is everywhere relative to AI. We also have a very unique business model 
that gives us the ability to have a very, very good uh, vision in the future in terms of when people use our products. So relative to our confidence in the outlook, uh, we have a very, very high confidence that the growth rate that we have talked about will be sustained. How worried were investors about China and your exposure? I think there were a lot of questions, as you can imagine, about China in general, mm -hmm. uh, given all the geopolitics. Our business there looks a lot like the rest of the world. We have great growth in the data center. We have great growth in automotive. Uh, China's huge on electric vehicles, so it's been uh, terrific there for us. I have the same kind of uh, headaches that every other tech CEO has regarding how to navigate through this, but no different. Do you think there will be more pressure now that you're public again? Ultimately, I mean, you came to Arm in 2013, you were listed at that point, but it's not been since 2016 that you have been. How does the game change as a leader of that business now? You know, I think there's some things that we were able to do as a private company that will just be different, right? Yes. Quarterly earnings, making sure that we hit all our commitments. But Arm is not a business you measure from quarter to quarter. Mm -hmm. uh, you measure us over years and decades. And the long-term vision is something that I am very, very passionate about and will continue to drive the company the same way, private or public. You have a lot of key vested interests, whether they be your clients, Apple, TSMC, Intel taking big stakes in the company today. How important are those voices vis-a-vis -vis Masses, the head of SoftBank, who I'm sure you're on the phone to daily? Yeah, so one of the challenges of our industry, and particularly with, with Arm, is that the fact that we're everywhere, uh, none of this works unless we play nice with others. <laughs> so we have to have uh, a lot of engagement with strategic partners and making sure that we're managing that balance, including Masa, our chief shareholder. Do you think he lets more of Arm become public? Is that something you'd like to see? You know, Moss and I talk quite frequently, uh, but it's really not about the day-to-day. -day. It's about the long-term vision, the, the passion that he and I have about the future, and really about what this company can be long-term. So I don't expect that to change, being a public company. Do you think you'd go public in the UK? I'm sure it's been bittersweet for the London Stock Exchange today. Yeah, so today, obviously, we're in New York, uh, but we're incredibly proud of our UK heritage, and we are open to considering that down the road. Okay. Any sort of time frame for that? Uh, none that we can talk about today. I'm, I'm trying to get through today a little bit. <laughs> well, before you get through today in that respect, investors do love all things regarding artificial intelligence. But how have you managed to land that your story is different? People have been so exuberant about NVIDIA where you used to work. Yeah. But they're, they're really exuberant about GPUs. How have you said that you are able to claim a larger royalty share of how AI continues to be set. Yeah, so one of, one of the benefits of the Roadshow was spending a lot of time with investors uh, talking about AI and where we fit. And I think one of the misconceptions is that a GPU can run without a CPU, mm -hmm. uh, which is just not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, the CPU is central to every electronics device, and there are devices that ship with a CPU and a GPU. So once investors kind of got that, then explaining where the puck was going relative to, gosh, NVIDIA's next generation most advanced product, Grace Hopper, is using ARM CPUs instead of the competition, the light bulb went on that, oh my gosh, you need the CPU. And at the same time, NVIDIA has made a big bet on ARM in their most sophisticated product. And once that message kind of sunk through, people, the, the light bulb went on as, oh my gosh, I, I get it. There has been this moment though at which we're trying to understand how the landscape works with global demand and that translating into revenue. When you think of Oracle's numbers that came in and look, they delivered 30% increase when it comes to their cloud provision and, and their AI bet, but it doesn't always immediately turn into revenue in the here and the now. How convinced are you that it is going to be in the bottom line evident in the next coming quarters? As far as AI? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I think it's un unquestionable that AI, which has already been here, right, for, for a number of years, uh, the chat GPT moment 
taught us that, oh my gosh, the capability of what this can do going forward has gone up a level. And I think we've seen that over and over in our industry. Uh, there tends to be lightning bolt moments that greatly accelerate the adoption of technology. And I think with AI, as you move towards AGI, computers that can think, uh, I think we now have seen an accelerant for that. Ultimately down the road, how people make money off that, it'll get figured out. Uh, but AI is here to stay, that's un unquestionable. And it seems as though you're integral to SoftBank's vision of AI and Massa's vision of AI. How, can you enunciate a little bit, you say you're talking to him daily, what his vision of ARM within the ecosystem going forward really is? Uh, he and I share a very same view that ARM is one of the most important technology companies uh, in our industry, foundational, uh, if you will. And I would like to see us over the next five to 10 years really be recognized that way. And, and he and I are very aligned on that. Uh, as you can imagine, when you think about five to 10 years out, there's a lot of things to talk about in terms of the art of the possible, but that's really where he's focused on when his conversations with me. Long-term thinking, but then near-term action. We understand he was pretty uh, integral to calling the shots on price points for today's listing. How was that as a just an IPO experience? Did he end up being like, no, we need to leave a little bit of money on the table, this needs to be a successful trade? But all I can say is, uh, and this is my first roadshow, so the, uh, everything was a learning experience. We wanted to be at the high end of the range that we set, 47 to 51, and that's where it ended up. So we're happy, we're very thrilled with today. You said that school friends are getting in touch. Couldn't you, why have you been hiding this from them? How, <laughs> how do you feel differently now as a CEO of a publicly traded company? Do you feel differently today? Uh, I feel a little bit differently in looking ahead at this number than what the share price is. That wasn't something we looked at before. But, you know, again, when I, and I told this to employees, while the IPO is amazing and I'm, I could not be more proud of it, I'm far more excited about the next five to 10 years. And, and that's where my head is focused. Obviously, we need to do things as a public company CEO, but um, I don't feel too much different. And sometimes these are marketing exercises. Mm -hmm. Arm is B2B. But, do you think you've become more relevant B2C now? You're saying how people had no idea. Well, that's because largely people don't realize that every day they're interacting yeah. with your designs, with your blueprints. The, the people who need to know what we do, do know. Obviously, just given the fact that all the global partners that we work with. Uh, going forward, how to market ourselves as a public company. That's one of the things as a, a public company CEO, I'll spend some time thinking about. Uh, but right now, we're just kind of focused on, uh, on today and, and what that means. And meanwhile, within this exuberance of today, yesterday we saw basically every key chief executive of an AI company, AI-related company, uh, indoors in a closed hearing with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Can you tell us about regulation? How do you see the landscape evolving to ensure that you can harness that AI moment? I think it is one of those areas that um, is an unknown moment, and I, I remember talking to an executive about the analogy or metaphor we used was when cars were invented. You mm -hmm. didn't have driver's licenses, uh, you didn't have lanes, you didn't have rules of the road. There was a lot of things that people had to figure out in terms of uh, taking a, a device that was gonna be very, very productive, but could be very dangerous in terms of automobile accidents. AI is a little bit of the same in the sense that we're now in a new paradigm where some, uh, some rules and regulations need to be figured out, and that's why I think you're seeing all this activity around that area. Is the US leading the charge on regulation? Is Europe, is the UK? Where's getting it right from your perspective? I think all the governments are trying to figure it out. Uh, I know the EU has spent a lot of energy on this, as had the UK, so in terms of who's getting it right, I think it's still early days, and, uh, and everyone's really just trying to learn how technology and this new uh, powerful algorithm will work together.
keep teaching us. Great <laughs> to have some time with you. Thank Renee you House, so much. Of course, the CEO of Arm, the day of their listing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.